Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Nicole Sullivan, Director of Climate Services at Carbon Better. Carbon Better, as the name suggests, is a privately held firm focusing on clean energy and carbon offset consulting. Recently, we had a guest on the show talking about the carbon market which made me well aware of just how much I don't actually know about the carbon market. So I'm glad that I met Nicole and have her as a guest today on the show, where she is going to help us take a deep dive into what exactly this carbon market is and how a company like Carbon Better is also making this possible and helping helping the carbon market. So enough rambling from me. Let's get into it. Nicole, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Carbon Better. Sure. So I'm an environmental engineer by trade, and I've actually spent more than a decade working in sustainability and environmental consulting um, across a whole range of industry sectors, including oil and gas, petrochemicals, and manufacturing. Um, So in my day-to-day role at Carbon Better, I support clients at every step of their sustainability journey, uh, from quantifying and disclosing their environmental impacts, uh, including including carbon, to developing their sustainability strategy, um, and ultimately reducing their emissions, both directly and through participating in the voluntary carbon market. Um, We at Carbon Better also help develop and market carbon credit projects. Um, And we really believe that what's good for the planet is good for business. So we're here to help our clients every step of the way, um, whether they're just getting started or actively working towards reaching net zero. Very good. Thank you for your introduction. And of course, this podcast being the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is all about the energy transition, decarbonization, and seeing the technology getting us to that low carbon future it sounds like that is really kind of where kind of in a sense where carbon better is helping companies along their decarbonization and sustainability journey one one major thing here an unspoken assumption is to reach this low carbon future there's going to be some type of financial incentive to decarbonize. And that brings us to this idea of the carbon market. I don't think I've actually asked any guests, what exactly is the carbon market? 
So in answering your question, I'm going to focus on the voluntary carbon market, um, which allows carbon emitters, so anyone that is um, generating carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, um, to offset their unavoidable emissions by purchasing carbon credits um, from carbon offset projects that are targeted at removing or reducing carbon from the atmosphere. Um, So the the market itself is actually, it's a little bit nebulous. So there are actual marketplaces out there where you can go and buy carbon credits directly. Um, and there's emerging exchanges like the CBL. Um, but there's actually really not a one-stop shop for buying carbon credits in the voluntary carbon market. Um, so many transactions are, are actually done over the counter through spot purchases. Um, so we can help clients if they come in and they you know, want to offset a thousand metric tons of carbon that they emitted, um, we can help match them to carbon credits from um, meaningful carbon offset projects. So in in this voluntary space, um, carbon credits are issued by registries um, and then um, client, uh, you know, emitters of carbon can purchase these credits and those transactions are, you know, logged on these registries of carbon credits. Um, And then ultimately, you don't offset your emissions until you retire the carbon credit. Um, And those retirement transactions are also logged by the registry. So clear as mud. Um, (laughs) But participation in the the voluntary carbon market. um, So like I said, it is voluntary. So these are, you know, people that are shopping for carbon that have maybe made a net zero promise or are targeting to reduce their emissions, say, by 25% by a certain year or reaching net zero by 2050. Um, that participation is on the rise. And it's really, it's a tool for companies that have made these pledges or who are looking to reduce their impacts to invest in carbon reduction projects around the world and ultimately mitigate their emissions. Um And so it's a space we're seeing more carbon projects come to market, um, but we're also seeing more more participants purchasing carbon credit. So it's very much an evolving market. Um, But I guess one concept that I also want to introduce real quick is that um, while carbon credits and participation in the voluntary carbon market is is a really important tool. Um, We also encourage folks to reduce whatever emissions they can. So, um, you know, it's, if you're making a product, it's really hard to produce that product with zero carbon emissions. So even if you do energy efficiency projects, you're still going to have some amount of carbon emissions that you can't abate. Um, So carbon credits and participation in the voluntary carbon market is a really important tool to bridge that gap. That is a, a very thorough explanation of the carbon market, making me realize there's a few things that I I guess we still need to define. The first one, you mentioned CBL. What is CBL? Um, CBL is actually um, an exchange. Um, it's a it's a marketplace and you you can actually um, buy some like grouped carbon credit projects through the CBL market. Um, they have what's called um, NGO, which is a, um, it's basically a grouping of nature-based carbon offset projects, but but CBL in itself is actually just an exchange platform um, where you can cert- um, where you can actually transact on environmental commodities. Okay. 
That's helpful. And now we've talked about carbon credits and you've also said reduction and carbon offsets. Are we, I guess, what's the difference in all of these different terms? That's a great question um, because there's a lot of a lot of jargon in the space and a lot of terms that that probably get used more interchangeably than they should. Um, so the core concept of carbon offsetting um, stems from being able to balance out your carbon emissions through carbon offset projects. Um, carbon offset projects are projects that. Um, that reduce or sequester carbon um, or capture carbon, and those projects can generate carbon credits. Um, So to offset your emissions, you can purchase carbon credits and then retire those credits to ultimately balance out your carbon emissions. Um, So when you retire a carbon credit, you have offset your emissions with that credit. Um, In the voluntary space, carbon credits get issued by carbon registries when you actually register a carbon offset project. So each each of these credits, each of these carbon credits represents one metric ton of carbon dioxide. And it's certified through registry and um, has a serial number or a tangible representation on that registry. Um, and so there, there's a number of different carbon registries out there. Some examples of those are the Vera Carbon Standard, Climate Action Reserve, the Gold Standard. And these registries have, have logs of all the carbon credits that have been registr- registered through their protocols. Um, and actually, some of these registries even use their own terms. So, for example, on the Vera Carbon Standard, a carbon credit is actually referred to as a verified carbon unit or VCU. Um, so, so that's really how it works in this voluntary space. Um, you'll also hear the term carbon credit in, um, in, in the regulatory space in, in terms of like cap and trade programs where carbon credits act as allowances. So if you have a mandatory cap on your carbon emissions where you're only allowed to emit up to X amount of carbon and then say you emit less than that, you could get a generated credit for, for being under your cap. Interesting. And so... I guess this all this all kind of starts first with that carbon offset and mm-hmm. something that as you were talking one of the one of the things that I thought about was I guess it it is possible then for a company to kind of do all of this on their own if oil company XYZ wants to go say plant a bunch of trees as a carbon offset or does a CCS project offsetting carbon, hypothetically, they could become net zero, fully offset their carbon, their carbon emissions without going to the carbon market? Is that possible? So you can definitely balance out your emissions by doing projects. Um they're, the value in going to a marketplace and actually getting the credit certified is the the transparency and traceability that comes with that. Um, so, for example, with tree planting, um, you know, across the different registries, there are a number of protocols for 
um, reforestation projects or tree planting projects. Um, and the way these, um, the way the development of that carbon credit works is um, you you submit your idea to the the registry and then you submit a, a significant amount of monitoring and measuring data um, as well as uh, third-party verification. So before a registry will issue a credit, um, there's typically a series of steps and reports and on-site third-party verification to, to truly ensure that the, the ton of carbon that you, or the metric ton of carbon rather, that you claim to be sequestering or that you claim to be reducing is, is truly reduced. Um, so the, the verification associated with carbon credits uh, lends, lends significant credibility that that metric ton of carbon is truly a metric ton of carbon. That's a very good point that there's this this aspect of transparency and and verification that is needed. And and that, I guess, is why you would have this carbon credit market. And mm-hmm. I know we've talked about CCS, tree planting. Can you go through some of these different carbon offset projects that can ultimately become a carbon credit? Yeah, so there's actually... A significant number of um, the industry term is technologies, or um, we also use the word interventions. Um, so basically, these activities that can that can reduce or avoid or sequester carbon. Um, there's there's typically kind of thought of two buckets of of carbon offset project types. So there's nature-based projects. Um, Those would include things like improved forest management um, and reforestation, as well as agroforestry. Um, Agroforestry is one that I'm really passionate about. We're actually working with a project um, in Ghana, Oko Forest, to to help them develop credits from an agroforestry project, which is where, in addition to planting trees, you're also planting um, cattle crops um, and food sources. So um, in addition to sequestering carbon, there's this co-benefit of providing food security as well as income streams for local farmers. Um, so co-benefits is something we can get into more later, but I, um, you know, so nature-based is one bucket. There's some really cool project types out there. Um, currently, there's also things like mangrove blue carbon projects that are, that are evolving. Um, and then there's also non-nature-based projects. So um, things like renewable energy projects, wind, um, hydroelectric power, even run of river hydro, um, even solar projects, and then industrial projects such as nitrogen oxide abatement. Um, so there's really a whole spectrum of ways that you can, that you can, you know, sequester carbon and then there's different protocols for developing the carbon credit for each of these different technology types. Um, so for any of these projects types, a, a project developer, someone that is, you know, implementing this project, they would work to certify the project with a given registry and um, follow that registry's protocols. So, um, you know, there's improved forest management protocols out there on like both the American Carbon Registry as well as the Vera Carbon Standard and others. Um, But those protocols look a little different depending on the registry. Um, But each of those protocols has steps for um, quantifying the carbon and ultimately measuring it and proving out um, how much carbon, how many carbon credits should be issued. Um, And so as you can imagine, this process actually really takes some significant effort and time. 
Um, but ultimately it's the level of rigor is actually super important. Um, and that documentation that gets generated with the certification is also very important for the end user of the credit because it, it gives you that that trust that what you're buying represents a metric ton of carbon. Mm-hmm. Why would anybody choose one registry over another? That's a great question. So there's there's a number of registries out there, and that list actually kind of continues to grow. Um, there there are some you know kind of bigger registries that have you know emerged in the space and have been in the space longer. Some of those I've I've mentioned along the way. Um, such as Gold Standard, American Carbon Registry, Climate Action Reserve. Um, there's also Vera Carbon Standard, Plan Vivo, um, and, and a number of others. But the, you know, in terms of choosing a registry, um, you you want to look for something that is this publishing, you know, ma- that has a public ledger of of their projects, of their retirements, um, that is publishing the documentation associated with projects. Um, so, so ultimately, it it might be, you know, there are some smaller one-off registries out there that you might not feel as comfortable transacting on because they're not making their data public, and so you don't have that confidence in what you're buying. Um, but ultimately, you know, a lot of it I think comes down to availability as well. Maybe you're looking specifically for a reforestation project in the United States um, to offset your emissions and you found some projects that are available on Climate Action Reserve or um, you know, maybe you want a project that is, say, in Africa, um, and there, you know, there's obviously some registries that aren't global. So um, you might look to a global registry if you have a specific location in the world that you're looking for a project to purchase from. I've got a few more questions about these registries. It's just so fascinating sure. to to dive in. It sounds like a lot of data. That's what actually Data Gumbo was the the previous guest talking about about the carbon market. But what do these registries currently do with all of this data? I would imagine my my biggest concerns coming up are any type of hacks, any type of general data loss, or potentially one of these registries going out of business and now all of this data and all of these credits disappearing. That's a, a great question. So, um, you know, as of now, the data is predominantly, you know, public on their websites and accessible accessible by the public. Um, you know, I have heard of some exploration of using blockchain in this space, um, but right now it's it's mostly web-based registries from, from what I've seen. And it's data that you can export to Excel typically, um, but that's in terms of you know in terms of data potential data loss. I, I can't really speak on the on behalf of the registries for that. Mm. Okay. And what happens to those carbon credits if one of these registries goes out of business? Is that all still I guess still a carbon credit? And can you move it to a different registry? How does that work? Um, so that's a great question. So I, I think I mentioned earlier that you you officially offset your emissions when you retire that credit. Um, so any credits that you have retired 
Um, even if a registry were to say, I guess, potentially go out of business, that retirement of that credit um, would still stand, I believe. Um, You know, it's... It's a space where we've we've seen more and more registries come to market, but I, I haven't actually seen any registries shut down. So I I don't know if there are safeguards in place for that um, to be able to to move a project from one registry to another. Um, so that's a great question and something I'd, I'd be happy to look into more and, and circle back with you on. Yeah, I think that's one of those things that as we are looking at the growth of, of the carbon market, something that others will probably th- be thinking about. Now, with retirement, we've talked about retirement quite a bit here, and I'm not sure I fully understand what this retirement is. and. Sure. It sounds like it is a a definitive moment in time, but is it something that you can prolong or like? I guess let's. Can you uh, explain the retirement process a little bit more? Yeah, of course. So the the retirement is to your point. It's it's kind of like a, a moment in time where. Um, so let's let's look at a, a calendar year example. Say I have quantified a business's emissions for the calendar year 2021. They had a thousand metric tons of carbon that they emitted. Um, and then I turn around and I, I purchase a thousand metric tons of carbon credits on their behalf. Um, they don't actually cancel out their emissions, um, that thousand metric tons. Um, until they apply those carbon credits through retirement. So basically, it's it's a carbon accounting mechanism where you've done your math, you've purchased your carbon credits, and then you retire those credits to cancel out your emissions. And so then you, you actually retire them and a retirement note will show up on the registry once you've processed that retirement. So you could say, um, you know, retired on behalf of XYZ company, or if a company is purchasing offsets, like on behalf of their customers, the note might say, you know, on behalf of the customers of this business. Um, but ultimately, the act of retiring the credits is um, the the step in the carbon accounting process where you have canceled out your emissions by retiring those carbon credits and officially applying them to those emissions. Okay. Now, as we're talking, I'm I'm getting more more questions in my mind about actually generating carbon credits. Mm-hmm. I think the the most relevant right now, as you're walking through this, my mind is immediately going to different types of oil to relate to different types of carbon credits. It's kind of talking in terms everybody would know, WTI versus Brent, the spot prices on those are often different. So those different crudes mm-hmm. ha- are priced differently. Is this the same with carbon credits as in are, are all carbon credits equal or not? That's a great question. So, um, and my answer is kind of twofold because, you know, I would say that not all carbon credits are created equal um, because as you're evaluating carbon credits, you have to really think um, and, you know, look at the data. Did that carbon credit you bought or you're looking to purchase actually reduce or avoid a metric ton of carbon emissions? Um, and there's a number of factors in that, like how old is the credit? 
Um, have the protocols for that carbon credit changed? Um, you know, what type of project is it? Um, is there additionality? Is, is this project something that, you know, this action actually did, you know, sequester carbon or avoid carbon versus this is something that would have happened even in the status quo? Um, and so it can be hard to compare different carbon projects across so many different technologies ranging from, you know, renewable energy all the way through agroforestry. Um, and so those differences in technology, you also see significant variability in the pricing of carbon credits. Um, typically, nature-based projects tend to derive a higher price point. Um, similarly, geography plays a factor in pricing. So uh, U.S.-based projects can be more expensive sometimes than projects elsewhere in the globe. Um, I just mentioned, you know, age of the credit playing a role. Um, we refer to that in the space as the, the vintage of the credit, um, and that can impact costs. So typically, an older vintage project might transact at a lower price point. Um, and then there's things like the volume that you're purchasing. So um, if you're purchasing in high volume, you might be able to get, you know, things at a, a slightly different price point than if you're looking to, to purchase a small volume of credits. Um, and then something I, I touched on very briefly earlier is the, the co-benefits of a project. So um, what else is that project doing besides, um, besides reducing your carbon emissions? Are there water benefits associated with the project or food security benefits? Are they helping meet um, you know, other United Nations sustainable development goals? Um, so, so there's a number of factors that can really impact the price point and the variability in pricing. Um, but because so many of these transactions are done on a spot basis or over the counter, um, pricing data can be really hard to come by. Um, and, you know, transparency on price of transaction isn't always readily available. So in that regard, the, the voluntary carbon market can feel really opaque um, from a pricing perspective. That's really fascinating to think about all of those different metrics that can go into the, the simple price of the carbon. Because I think when you when I get down to what I'm hearing you say is that a carbon credit should equal a carbon credit in terms of this is one metric ton not going into the atmosphere. But mm -hmm. as you talk about it, it's very clear that there are these other other impacts of whatever that project is. And I'm I'm a little surprised to hear that the nature-based solutions are are more expensive because I would expect something like renewable energy or or a carbon capture and sequestration project that to me has this long-term benefit. I would expect that to be more valuable. Yeah, I think part of it is the stories associated with the project. So um, being able to to say that you invested in restoring a forest, there's there's something kind of beautiful about that from um, you know from a putting it out there perspective. Um, and you know it maybe sounds at sometimes like more appealing to end users than say a, a wind farm. Um, I will say there there are certainly exceptions to that, like. Um, 
direct air capture, for example, um, you know, still is is something that is so you know in very early stages. So so purchasing you know offsets associated with direct air capture can be you know highly expensive. Hmm. Now one more question on the carbon credits, then I want to zoom out a little bit with carbon credits. At what point in the process does it become a credit? I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm I'm imagining that what you do is you go through the whole process, you make your tally book, and you show proof that you've avoided carbon for the past year. Say that's the one metric ton. And now you have that one carbon credit that you can go sell. Whereas I, mm-hmm. I'm also wondering is is selling carbon credits an avenue to actually go and do one of these reforestation projects, in which case you're actually selling the carbon credits before you actually do the carbon avoidance? Yeah, so so great question. Um, so ultimately the the project, you know, you, you can do all the paperwork associated with the project and it becomes a credit once the once the registry approves approves your math essentially and issues that credit. Um, and then you can you turn around and sell and transact on that issued credit. Um, we have seen some folks try to uh, pre-sell credits, um, whether that be with like long-term offtake agreements and things like that. Um, you know, there is some risk associated with pre-selling credits in that what happens if the project, you know, fails or the credits don't get issued. Um, so, so ultimately, you know, credits become issued and, you know, you can transact on those credits and sometimes, you know, project developers will use the funds that they generated to invest in the next project or continue, continue to expand on an existing project, um, but as a buyer, you know, there, there are definitely, in, you know, inherent risks to, to pre-buying a credit um, because, you know, the, the registry timelines are, are variable. Um, and especially as there's more backlog of projects coming to market, it, it can take time um, for registries to, to issue those credits. And then, you know, there are cases where where projects fail or you know don't get as many credits issued as they might have expected. So, um, you know, there's a number of considerations associated with that. Okay, so if I hear you correctly, you are saying that anything that is on a registry being sold is a mm-hmm. is a verified amount of carbon that has been offset that has now been turned into a carbon credit. But if you go to a company who is who is, I guess, if you're buying carbon credits in a pre-sale, that would be something that you would be signing some type of contract directly with this this project that would then, in the later term, issue you credits through a registry if those do, in fact, get awarded. Yeah, that's that's likely how that would work, and you know the contract terms in the space are are definitely variable. Um, but but yeah, so so typically we see people buying credits that are already issued, unless they're they're really looking to invest in the development of that project, mm-hmm. in which case they might provide upfront funding. Okay, that's very interesting, and the, and this whole market is 
interesting to talk about. I think that we, we've been kind of in the weeds trying to understand the market. Now I want to take a, a step back. I think we understand the market is selling these quantities of carbon, in this case, really avoided or reduced carbon. From your perspective, I guess, what is the main goal of the carbon market? Sure. So I, I really see the goal as as kind of twofold. So um, the voluntary carbon market, it really creates ways for companies to offset their emissions, um, especially emissions that they cannot reduce themselves. So it provides a pathway to to mitigate those emissions that they they cannot implement a project for directly on their site. Um, and, you know, this comes into play with companies that have set goals to reaching net zero or even just goals to reduce their emissions. So it, carbon credits, um, which, you know, you shop for in the voluntary market are a tool to be used. And I, I would argue that it's really currently impossible to, to be zero carbon or carbon free with w- directly. So um, they're a tool that's needed um, as you, you know, as you work to reduce your emissions, like it's really hard, nearly, I would say, impossible to reduce your emissions all the way to zero. Um, so the voluntary carbon market comes into play as a tool uh, for companies to use. Um, it also really creates a pathway to fund carbon reduction and sequestration projects. Um, so by you know enabling these project developers to to bring these projects to market and generate carbon credits, um, it you know creates funds that get generated from selling these credits, and that can be utilized to keep these projects going and develop more projects. So um, you know the the real goal of the the voluntary carbon market is you know decarbonization and, and climate mitigation, but it, it kind of, it serves two purposes in that regard. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And it, that helps understand. And and I, I would have to say, I completely agree that it is so difficult to become a carbon-free company or even, even a carbon-free individual and figuring out how to how to do that is ultimately with everything it's going to take collaboration and in this case that collaboration is going in and buying carbon credits from the market now with all markets i do feel like there are some advantages and disadvantages we've talked a lot about those advantages one we just pointed out the ability for now large corporations or individuals to to be able to be net zero carbon when it could be physically impossible for them to do it on their own. I'm curious, are there other major advantages and what adva- what disadvantages are there currently in the voluntary carbon market? Sure. So I think, you know, another advantage is just creating pathways to to develop more carbon reduction projects. Um, you know, there's the registries are, are kind of constantly um, doing more work and bringing more protocols and technologies to life um, that are, you know, eligible for, for generating carbon credits. So 
um, I think it's it's really creating an incentive to to develop carbon carbon offset projects, which I think is is hugely valuable as we work to to reduce emissions globally. Um, you know, I do think there's risk when when you can ultimately become net zero exclusively through carbon credits. So, um, you know, as a business, um, you know, your goal, you know, in my opinion, should be to reduce your emissions what you can first before before then offsetting the rest. But there's no rules that say you can't just achieve net zero exclusively through carbon offsets. Um you know, I think another another challenge we'll see is that you know we we've got a lot of companies making net zero pledges, which is fantastic, right? We we all want to see companies do better and and strive to make progress, um, but you know there's only so much carbon available in the voluntary carbon market. Um, and so we will need collaboration and we will need to find other ways to reduce emissions besides just exclusively purchasing carbon credits. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you make and something that I started to think about that the larger, essentially a, a larger corporation that has more disposable income, so to speak, they can then go and buy more more carbon credits. and essentially be able to buy their way to net zero. Whereas if you don't have that large disposable income and the the extra profits to do so, then you you either have to find a way to reduce your carbon footprint or you you will then not be able to reach net zero goals for your company. And in that way you are almost being penalized for not being able to buy your way to net zero. Mm-hmm. Just a thought that that's rolling through my mind as we're talking through this. Now, I ask all of my guests when they think we'll reach net zero. And I think we've been talking about net zero here, but when we talk about it, it's very clear that there isn't really a good hard definition. Now you've been working in this space for for quite some time now. So I want to know what is your definition of net zero? Sure. So to to get to net zero, there's there's a lot of complicated math and assumptions in there. Um, but ultimately, it's it's really a super simple math equation where you take your, your carbon emissions or your carbon release to the atmosphere and you subtract your carbon reductions and you get the numbers to balance out to zero. Um, like to me, that's ultimately net zero is your, your emissions minus your reductions equals zero. Um, so your carbon emissions can include um, emissions directly from your business or from you as an individual, as well as indirect emissions from purchased energy um, or emissions all across your entire value chain, including your suppliers. So um, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of scope one, two, and three. Um, so there's, there's different buckets of your carbon emissions, but those are kind of what those buckets encompass. 
Um, and then carbon reductions can include directly reducing your emissions through, say, you know, an energy efficiency project or the replacement of a piece of equipment um, or indirectly reducing your emissions by, by purchasing carbon credits from you know, carbon offset projects globally. Um, and also renewable energy certificates or RECs are also a tool. Um, so, so really to get to net zero, we just need to get the numbers to balance out so that our emissions minus our reductions equals zero. Um, but something worth noting is that the complexity of reaching net zero really varies greatly depending on the type of business or operation you have. Um, so for an office building, reaching net zero might be pretty easy, but for a manufacturing company with, with a complicated supply chain, uh, reaching net zero can be, can be quite difficult. Hmm. When we're talking about net zero and the scope one, two, and three emissions, help me understand if everybody were to get to net zero on their scope one emissions, wouldn't that ultimately mean that everybody is net zero? Well, it's a little more complicated than that because, well, I guess to your point, um, even your scope two and direct emissions, if the power companies became net zero for their scope one, um, that, that could, I guess, theoretically make the math work. Um, you know, I, I would really argue that your, your net zero equation should include, uh, your entire emissions footprint. So your scope one, two, and three. Um, but the, the challenge in this space is that you can, you can kind of set your boundaries however you want, because this is voluntary, um, you can set the boundaries of your emissions that you're essentially reaching net zero for. Um, so it can be really hard to compare apples to apples when we talk about net zero. Um, and so the, you know, it's really important to have transparency in any claims that you're making and to provide math that support your claims um, so that it's clear to, to folks um, what the boundaries of, of your math were. That's really helpful to to hear and understand, and and this conversation is is also helping me formulate these different ideas. and And one of the questions that I had was that in this current energy economy, with everybody claiming these net zero goals, when we may not have a a clear definition of of what net zero means for any given company given a a quick tagline or a or a a blast on social media and and i i will volunteer i proliferate this idea of needing to reach a net zero society but i'm wondering is is net zero and saying net zero is that the right goal that we should be targeting or is there something else that i guess should i be asking all of my guests a different question then when will be net zero? Sure. So I guess before I answer your question, can I take a moment to, to quickly talk about what is left out of a net zero equation? Yes, absolutely. So in a net zero approach, you are focused exclusively on carbon emissions. So uh, you don't look at air emissions um, besides carbon, such as hazardous air pollutants. Um, you're not looking at water impacts, such as you know consumption and discharge. 
Um, and water is actually, water is such an important one because it really is directly related to climate change and carbon impacts. Um, and you're also in a net zero approach, you're not looking at waste impacts such as solid waste, plastic waste, hazardous waste. Um, so, you know, all of those things should be considerations and a, a holistic environmental strategy. But I, I think it is critical for folks to know that um, a company can achieve net zero without considering any of their other environmental impacts. Um, so that's going to play into my answer a little bit in terms of if net zero is the right goal. And I would say net zero is an important goal and a great goal. Um, but it shouldn't necessarily be the only goal. So um, there's a lot of other other opportunities to have an impact. And something that I get concerned about with, um, you know, all of the pressure to reach net zero is that um, an inability to get all the way to zero can hinder folks from getting started. Um, so if we're just focusing on making this carbon math equation reach zero, it can take our eye off of the, you know, the ultimate problem of, of really protecting our environment and, you know, doing whatever we can to, to mitigate our, the full spectrum of our environmental impacts. So, um, you know, beyond just focusing on getting the equation to reach zero, I really feel like we should focus on being accurate to the extent we can with our emissions and impactful with our reductions, even if we can't get to zero today. Um, I also just really think targets should be, you know, tailored to your operations and um, how your business or operation you know, relates and, you know, interacts with the environment. Um, you know, if I don't, I don't think we should be looking at carbon in a vacuum, even though we definitely should be looking at carbon and carbon is hugely important. Um, we should also be looking at our other air emissions, our water, our waste impacts, um, and do our best to, to also, um, you know, make strides there. That's a really great point And something that I was trying to figure out how to ask or trying to figure out what I was going to say. And this, this makes it helps me because I, I think about things like the, the East Texas piney woods or switchgrass or all of these very fast growing organic matters as being a way to sequester carbon for a period of time and to generate carbon offsets. But ultimately, what you were talking about earlier with the the co-benefit agro reforestation, to me, that is a much better solution. And that is something that that is more of a holistic solution. Whereas if you're just looking at that carbon offset, you would want to put away as much carbon as fast as possible. But ultimately, that could mean something that is is detrimental in certain other areas that would end up producing a lower overall beneficial impact. Yeah, so I, I think ultimately we need to look at, you know, a number of solutions in tandem, right? It's, I think we're at this point where it's an, an all hands on deck situation and, you know, it's, it's not, there's not going to be one end all be all solution to, to reaching net zero or decarbonizing. So it's, it's about, you know, you know, having tough conversations, collaborating and finding ways to, 
um, you know, reduce our environmental impacts in really meaningful ways. Yes, absolutely. Well, I've really appreciated your your candid answers and fielding these tough questions because I know these have not been very nice softball easy questions to discuss. And so thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. One thing that I I am not fully aware of is where exactly does a company like Carbon Better fit into this this equation? So really, you know, we're we're here to help. So we we help companies at at every stage of their sustainability journey. Um, we ultimately want to help companies reduce their carbon footprints and participate in the carbon economy. Um, but we really we want to help people take action today, where wherever they are. So, um, you know, if they haven't quantified an environmental baseline yet, um, or quantified their environmental impacts, um, to ultimately set reduc- reduction targets and then offset their emissions or implement water projects. Um, you know, we can help with all of that. We can help with that strategy, and then we can ul- ultimately help them, you know, reduce their emissions. So, um, we we really believe in, in choosing progress over perfection and taking action. And you know, this is a space that continues to evolve, um, and we're here to help help folks make it easier. Because as you've seen, the the carbon market is is complicated. So um, we're here to navigate that for folks. Yes, it is. It is quite complicated. So thank you for for putting that in perspective and and helping us see see how how we can start moving forward. I really like the phrase progress instead of focusing on perfection. Now, with that, I want to jump into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. The first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Um, so I'm actually currently rereading A Sand County Almanac by Otto Leopold, and it is a personal favorite. The The way he writes about nature is just uh, so prolific. Um, he is, you know, kind of one of the OG conservationists and ecologists and it just really makes you feel called to to better care for our environment and conserve our resources and um you know it just the way he talks about certain bird species and and plants it just you feel like you're there and it's it's really neat i like it it is on my bedside table in about nice. midway in the stack of books that i need to read so it is already on the list and a little bit further because I have a copy of it. Perfect. And the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? So despite despite my role and background, I, I don't actually have a good answer for this. You know, right now there's there's an increasing number of companies and countries setting net zero targets. Um, but not all of those folks have clear roadmaps for how they're going to get there. And I think technology is going to continue to evolve and the carbon market is going to continue to evolve. Um, So scaling up technologies is going to be important. Bringing more supply to the carbon market is going to be important. Taking action and finding ways to directly reduce emissions. All of these things will be important levers for reaching net zero, but I, I truly don't have a good answer for you. So I'm, I'm not even going to take a pass that at it. That is okay. I like that nuanced approach and that nuanced answer. I'm going to add one more and maybe I will switch this one in. 
with without net zero, what would be a better goal to discuss? Maybe when or what does a sustainable society look like for you? That's a great question. To me, I think a sustainable society is going to look like ultimately reducing our consumption. Um, so, you know, when we look at environmental impacts more holistically and we include waste and water as well as carbon and energy, um, you know, I think we as individuals um, and then businesses as well, if we can find ways to ultimately reduce our consumption, um, participate more in our local economies, um, in some ways go back to more traditional ways of doing things, um, ultimately that can be hugely impactful. Hmm. I like that. So then the last question I have is actually now you get to ask me a question. Sure. So so given the top of topic of your podcast and all the conversations that you've been having, um, what do you see right now as the biggest trans, uh, biggest challenge or, you know, um, or the biggest opportunity in the energy transition space? Yes. The biggest challenge by far, and I think we've highlighted it here today, is just scaling up. We have a lot of carbon that needs to be sequestered. We have a lot of energy that needs to be produced in a low carbon way. And we need to kind of change very large systems like the current the current food system, the current energy system, and and maybe change out fuels for the current transportation system. So the biggest challenge is just finding a way to scale and scale at an exponential rate because we we need to start start making significant progress and we need to make it rather quickly. There is a a talk that I was at that if we want to hit net zero goals by 2050, there needs to be significant advancement in technologies and significant adoption by 2030. And kind of these next 10 years is really going to show what trajectory we're on and kind of give us the the uh, give us the odds on whether we are going to hit those goals. So that is the biggest challenge I see. I think in that same light, there's so much opportunity. I see it almost every day. I get emails from the Department of Energy here in the U.S., and there are there are new funding opportunity announcements that are coming out every single day, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, whether it is community geothermal, whether it's deep geothermal. There, there are always opportunities to seek funding to start building those solutions. And I think that I also see that coming from the private side of it with with capital wanting to see solutions being implemented. So I think those are the the challenges scaling up, but the opportunity is that if you have a a scientifically sound idea and maybe even not scientifically sound, if you just have an idea that can be tested, 
people are willing to, if you find the right people, you can get funding to start testing that idea. And maybe you're, you're the next unicorn that, that, for lack of a better term, saves the world. Definitely. Well, Nicole, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Um, Just that I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. You know, sustainability in the carbon world can can often feel more complicated than it should. And I think people are afraid to misstep on sustainability and have some of the challenging conversations. So I really think, you know, having dialogue like this and and getting folks engaged is so important. So I, I really value the opportunity. And I would just say if your listeners have any questions, they can, you know, please feel free to reach out. Great. Thank you very much. And we will definitely have your LinkedIn and contact information in the show notes. So thank you again for joining me. And thank you everyone for joining me on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend. Doing these quick and easy actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great energy stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon, mention OGGN, and they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly industry mixers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.